So here we are again. So one more full day is over, your third full day. And from what I've heard in the small groups is that you're really settling and arriving and really um, taking the practices to heart and really working with them, which is really beautiful. Um, In my talk tonight, I want to talk about working with the inside and outside perception of the body. And then we'll move into how we can work with physical and emotional pain. And I want to share how kindness and compassion can be helpful in this process. And so before I go into this list, I want to share just a little bit more about myself and why am I here on this retreat. So on my itinerary, never stood Dharma or mindfulness teacher either. And if it was for my father, it still wouldn't. I'm a physician, or I was trained as a physician, and I thought I would always do that. I loved, loved, loved my work. I was a gynecologist. Um, I worked in uh, Berlin in the University Hospital in Germany. And But I also encountered um, the Dharma when I finished high school. I was looking for like meaning of life, and I just wanted something bigger than what was available to me or what was offered wasn't, that wasn't working for me. And so when I came across Buddhism, it was really <coughs> Buddhism in the lived form that was a revelation to me. I had read a little bit about Buddhism just as I was scanning and searching for like what could be a good fit for me. And back then, I think the only thing that I came across uh, was a book from Edward Conzi. And that was so dry. And it was so like, it's suffering. It's all about suffering. And I was like, no. I mean, I was 18. I was not so much interested in suffering and definitely not in like a religion that was um, focusing on that. So not for me. Thank you very much. And then how it sometimes goes, um, just the universe presents you with something. And for me, it was in the form of a handsome young man who actually had just been ordained for a year in a monastery in Thailand. And I met him on his way back. I was hitchhiking to England. It was very adventurous and um, hitchhiking around Europe by myself. And so we're taking the ferry over to England. And I met this very handsome and very kind young man. And how it sometimes is, is I thought I would fall in love with the man. What I realized afterwards was I actually fell in love with the Dharma. And what I fell in love with were the teachings. I mean, that he was handsome helped, I think. <laughs> um, don't want to deny that. But basically, basically, what happened was he said, 
why don't you come visit us? And there was there's a little enclave in the south of Britain where people who had all been involved in the um, Amaravati Buddhist monastery or who had been um, to Thailand had just a kind of a halfway house. So after they left the monastery, they needed a little bit more a cuddle group and hand-holding before they then moved into their individual lives. And so there was a group of... Um, men and women, and they invited me, and what they did is, so in the morning they would meditate together, and they had breakfast together, and then they would go about their day and do their work or what they were doing. And I was totally enamored with the way they were. There was something about them that I thought, I want that. I want that. And then the core teaching of um, the Buddha saying that you don't have to believe anything, you just try it out and see if it works with your own experience. That was really important for me because I was very independent. I didn't want to let anybody tell me what to do, what to believe. And so that was an invitation. I could take that. So um, then I spent uh, several weeks for two summers in, uh, in the Amaravati, in the Buddhist monastery, and just spent time there with the monks and nuns. And it was um, in the late uh, 80s. And um, I really loved that. I really loved the practice. And um, the practice has really been with me ever since. But I never thought that I would teach that one day. I was not interested in that. So I got accepted into medical school, and I went to medical school. And the teachings definitely helped me to get through medical school and then my residency. And then I think to also be a physician who was able to be with suffering in a way that a lot of my colleagues were not. Right. So I was working, um, my specialty was to work in... Um, gynecological oncology. And so to be with women who were diagnosed with cancer and had advanced cancer, recurring cancer, and then also would come often back to our hospital to die um, was something that I was very proud and honored to be part of that journey. And I never felt that like once like the Western medicine couldn't offer anything, my role was over. So, um, yeah, I really, that was really important to me. So, um, why I'm telling you this is because um, I want to share with you that um, the body, the body has always been very important to me. I always had an interest. I had an interest as a child in animal bodies. I was collecting skulls as a child. We lived in an area where there are a lot, a lot of woods. So I would walk with my dog, and I would come across like carcasses or um, skeletons. And I love, there's, I think there's something incredibly beautiful about a skeleton, and especially about skulls. So when I was like, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, 12 years old, I had a whole collection on my shelf of different animal skulls. <laughs> Um, I was very proud of that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was just something, an interest in it. And I, it was like I always felt that the body is really important. Really, this teaching that Bob has been repeating all these days, or the Buddha's teaching of, like, everything that is to be learned can be found in this fathom-long body. <coughs> very, very important. 
So today we are in the second day with uh, working with a list of body parts. And so we started them yesterday with the more outwards and visible parts. So head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. And for me, there are really two parts to this. So first, how does it feel from the inside compared to how I perceive it or what I think about it? And the second is, how am I perceived by others? So I want to start with the first. So how does it feel from the inside? So there's what we experience as we feel into our bodies, right? So what do you feel? Is what you feel the same as what you see when you look into the mirror? Is that the same or is it different? Different, yeah. Um, I really feel, feel very different. It's like I'm sometimes really still, you think I would get used to it, but I'm sometimes still surprised and not in a good way when I look into the mirror. Seriously, it's like, where are all these wrinkles coming from? Um, I had an interesting, ex- uh, interesting thing happening just a few weeks ago. So um, I go to a dance class. I'm a dancer, and I'm five rhythms dancer. And we are um, having a class in a room in L.A. where that's a big ballroom, and there are mirrors at the wall. But for the class, there are curtains, so you can't, because it's not about seeing yourself in a mirror. And so what I was doing at some point, I was um, just leaning against one of the mirrors and just bending over, basically doing like a forward bend just to stretch. And what happened was I happened to um, be with my face under the curtain, so there was a little bit of mirror left. So I happened to see this face upside down. (laughs) And I tell you, it was a shock. I have not seen this face upside down. And I was like... Where's all these flap come from? I was just like, who's that? And it was really interesting because that is not how I perceive my body, how I perceive myself, how I perceive my face. And I know that this is actually quite common, right? So some of you might have a few years ago, there was from the um, um, cosmetic Um, firm Dove, they did like clips, and what they did is they had a trained forensic artist, so somebody who just makes uh, images from people from description, right? So they would do like the search images of people where they don't have pictures, so people would describe what the person looked like, and they tried to come up with an image that is as close to reality as possible. And what this person did is he created an image of a group of women Uh, based on how they described themselves. So there was a curtain between the artist and the women. And they were just saying, like, well, like, my face looks like this, and my eyes are like that, and my hair and my chin. And so he would draw them. And then um, he still hadn't seen the women. And then they would have a stranger behind the curtain look at the woman and each of the women and describe what the stranger saw. Right, so she would des- or, this, or he or she would describe this woman who had previously described herself, and the artist would draw a different picture, a new picture of that woman. And then what they did is they hung up both pictures, 
and showed the women. And then they filmed the women um, looking at these pictures from behind. And it's, it's very touching. I mean, after a retreat, you can look that up because it's really so clearly that and, um, the self-perception, and maybe especially so for women, was like the women described themselves as way less beautiful than a stranger would see them. Right? So very powerful. So we're walking around with an idea about ourselves that's actually not true. It's not true. And this was not somebody who really loves you, like your mother describing your face, for example. It's just like, oh, it's the most beautiful face in the world, maybe, right? Uh, No, there was a stranger. So there was like a sense of this is more really neutral. This is just, I just describe what I see, right? And... So there is a discrepancy for many of us, right, in that sense. And I think that's important to just be aware of. So question for you. So if you want to close your eyes for a moment and feel into how old do you feel? Not how old are you, but how old do you feel? So... How many of you do feel your passport age? Nobody? Wow. (laughs) You feel your passport age. Okay, good. So how many of you feel older? Okay, some, yeah. How many of you feel younger? Yeah, just look around, right? Quite interesting. So what's happening here? So... um, Many, I mean, I've, I've asked many people about this, and it's just interesting that for whatever reason, the majority of people does feel younger, and often, and you can see, often it's about like 10 to 15 years younger. Is that about what, what right, what you feel? Mm, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What's happening here, Right. So our self-perception is different. And then, of course, we are surprised when we look into the mirror and say, like, how did that happen? <laughs> right? That shouldn't look that way, right? It's just there's this discrepancy of inside and outside. So another question here. So when you feel into your body and you just feel, just feel sensations, is there judgment present? Question is, so let's just keep the experiment, um, let's just keep physical pain and challenging emotions aside for right now. We can work with that later. So please choose a body part that you're not so happy with, but that's not in pain right now, okay? So um, could be like the wrinkles in your face or your backside or just something that I think like could use a little bit of improvement, right? Or you have strong judgments about. We do have that at times, right? So leave all those aside and just feel into that body part. Just feel into it. So what we're feeling into is contact, like pressure. Is there contact with the arm or the, um, on the cushion or the floor? or a contact with uh, air, Um, temperature, position, maybe sense of tingling, maybe you don't feel anything at all. So here's a question. Does this body part feel like there's something wrong with it? 
No, right? Because when we are, because pressure is just pressure, and warmth is just warmth, and position is just position. There is no right or wrong way about it, right? So where do, where do, we, where do we get stuck? And I think often where we do get stuck is that we have an image of that body part, right? And there's actually quite a lot of research on that the way that we imagine our body is not what the body actually looks like, right? So for example, in the Duff um, clip that I uh, described, but also, I mean, you can ask, do that. So if you have women, especially women again, but it's also to some extent true for men, um, describe or measure or like measure out their bodies, they're pretty inaccurate, right? So then the question is, when we are doing all these reflections on the body, what do we actually focus on and what are we reinforcing? Because sensations are just sensations. They're not judgments, right? So it's just the way it feels and there's no right way to feel. And in uh, our tradition, so Vipassana, our inside meditation tradition, we use the practice of noting a lot, right? So we make a light mental note of what we're feeling. So there could be like pressure or warmth or tingling, or when we're describing the mind, it could be like planning, right, or worrying. And noting is, or the idea of noting is that it's actually neutral, right? That you don't note, like, I feel my fat butt on the cushion. That is not a good note. Or I feel the flabby skin on my upper arms. Not a good note, right? Do you see that? It's just like it's pressure, it's warmth, it's position. And that is neutral. So to see how really, like, aversion can sneak into that and disguising as this is the truth. No, it's not. <laughs> so, next um, part is, so how are we being perceived? So, we make very quick to make first judgments based on what we see. And that is natural, that is human, Right? We have to kind of figure out who's that person in front of us. So we don't have to have judgment around that happening, but we have to be very aware what that does to our perception, right? And then to be very careful what we do with that if we want to act on that. So we categorize it just in the course of a few seconds usually, right? So it's just like this, we have an impression and we have like basic information about the person down. So what we see is skin color, gender, or what we think the gender is, age, clothes, anything that stands out as unusual, like be it, or unusual can just be, say, I haven't seen this, right? So it doesn't mean it's unusual for the person, Right, but it's just like I'm not used to that, basically, and it will be something that my system will start to pay attention to, right? And it can be really something as as simple as like hair color, could be a missing limb, it could be visible scar, it could be like anything, right? And we can't again, we can't do anything about it, 
the train of judgment that often comes with that. Like, I like that, I don't like that, right? This is scary, like, this is not... I mean, like, all these things that really come very quick. But we can be aware of it and monitor, of course, our behavior. So I want to actually read a little bit, um, because this is just so up um, these days and here in the States... um, and definitely very up in my awareness. So I want to read you um, a few paragraphs from uh, Tanahisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. Um, so I'm sure some of you have read that. And he writes this, so he's a black man, and he writes a letter to his 15-year-old son. And so, so I starting with, so he starts with a sentence, I have seen that dream all my life. And what he talks about is the... American life of just um, peace and happiness and um, beauty and simplicity. So I've seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block association and driveways. The dream is tree houses and the Cub Scouts. And for so long, I have wanted to escape into the dream to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies. And knowing this, knowing that the dream persists by warring with the known world, I was sad for the host. He talks about a radio show that he did. I was sad for all those families. I was sad for my country. But above all, in that moment, I was sad for you. It was that week you learned that the killers of Michael Brown would go free. The man who had left his body in the street would never be punished. It was not my expectation that anyone would ever be punished. But you were still young and still believed. You stayed up till 11 p.m. that night, waiting for the announcement of an indictment. And when instead it was announced there was none, you said, I've got to go. And you went into your room, and I heard you crying. I came in five minutes after. I didn't hug you. I didn't comfort you because I thought it would be wrong to comfort you. I did not tell you it would be okay because I've never believed it would be okay. What I told you is what your grandparents tried to tell me, that this is your country, that this is your world, that this is your body, and you must find some way to live within all of it. Talking about the body, right? So that was something that was really touching for me when I read the book, is like the black body, right? I write you in your 15th year. I'm writing you because that was the year you saw Eric Garner choked to death for selling cigarettes because you know that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help, that John Crawford was shut down for browsing in a department store, and you have seen men in uniform drive by and murder Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child whom they were oath-bound to protect. And you know now, if you did not before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. It does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It does not matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. It does not matter if the destruction springs from a foolish policy. Sell cigarettes without the proper authority and your body can be destroyed. Turn into a dark stairwell and your body can be destroyed. 
They destroy us will rarely help be held accountable. Mostly, they will receive pensions. There is nothing uniquely evil in these destroyers or even in this moment. The destroyers are merely men enforcing the whims of our country, correctly interpreting its heritage and legacy. This legacy aspires to the shackling of black bodies. It is hard to face this. But all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charge, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And then he goes on to talk about the fear, the fear that he has always <laughs> as a black man and that he has about having a black son. And I was talking to that to a friend of mine who said, I have a black 18-year-old son who goes out there and I'm always scared. I'm always scared. He's not just an 18-year-old teenager. He's a black male 18-year-old teenager. And it just breaks my heart to, to know that, that this is happening. And he talks about like how the especially the men, they are behaving, they're pumping up, like all of their behavior is rooted in fear and trying to pretend that they actually own their own bodies, that they are not helpless in the face of what is happening in our country here, right? So it's a lot, it's just like it's pushing against that and trying to come to terms with that, to not giving up completely. So I felt the fear in the visits to my Nana's home in Philadelphia. You never knew her. I barely, barely knew her, but what I remember is her hard manner, her rough voice. And I knew that my father's father was dead, and that my uncle Oscar was dead, and that my uncle David was dead, and that each of these instances was unnatural. And I saw it in my own father who loves you, who counsels you, who slipped me money to care for you. My father was so very afraid. I felt it in the sting of his black leather belt, which he applied with more anxiety than anger. My father who beat me as if someone might steal me away, because that is exactly what has happening all around us. Everyone has lost a child, somehow to the streets, to jail, to drugs, to guns. It was said that these lost girls were sweet as honey and could not hurt a fly. It was said that these lost boys had just received a GED and had begun to turn their lives around. And now they were gone. And in their legacy was a great fear. So that is also part of our reality. That is also what is here in the room, right? So even if we're just sitting here, we still have, many of us in this room have a white body what does that mean to you? Many of, here, of us here have not a white body. What does that mean to you? Right? And many of us here have a female body. What does that mean? A male body. 
some of us here love the bodies of the same gender. What does that mean? A young body, an aging or old body, a sick body or some physical or mental dysfunction. What does that mean? And we all had a child's body at some point in the utter helplessness and the dependence of the care and kindness of others for our survival. What does that mean? And how does the meaning, this meaning, influence how we are in this world, how we're behaving in this world, how we are treating ourselves, and how we are relating to others? The trauma therapist Bessel van der Kolk has a book with the title, The Body Keeps the Score. My friend Babette Rothschild, a body-focused psychotherapist, with whom I uh, sometimes teach about trauma and mindfulness, has a book called The Body Remembers. And Bob has used a quote from a poem from Martha Elliott several times over the last few days that starts with the line, your history is here inside your body. And it's really, it's all of our history. Right? It's our individual history, but it's also our collective history. We're not separate from that. We never can be separate from that. Ida Rolf, the founder of Rolfing, which is a very intense massage technique that involves the whole body-mind system, says, an individual experience, an individual experiencing temporary fear, grief, or anger all too often carries in his body in an attitude which the world recognizes as the outward manifestation of that particular emotion. If he persists in this dramatization or consistently reestablishes it, thus forming what is ordinarily referred to as a habit pattern, the muscular arrangement becomes set. Materially speaking, some muscles shorten and thicken, Others are invaded by connective tissue. Still others become immobilized by consolidation of the tissue involved. Once this has happened, the physical attitude is invariable. It is involuntary. It can no longer be changed basically by taking thought or even by mental suggestion. Such setting of a physical response also establishes an emotional pattern. Since it is not possible to establish a free flow through the physical flesh, the subjective emotional tone becomes progressively more limited and tends to remain in a restricted, closely defined area. Now what the individual fears is not longer an emotion, a response to an immediate situation. Henceforth, he lives, moves, and has his being in an attitude. Right? Quite amazing. And I know we all know what she's talking about, right? The body and the mind are not separate. We carry that. And we carry and what we do repeatedly, right? This is what we become, which is true in the mind, but it's also true in the body. And they're um, one thing. So this is what we work with. Um, have you noticed that? Is that your experience? Body-mind, right? Here we are. Here we are in this retreat. So what do we do? So it's often hard to be with this body. But what are our choices? 
So chances are you have tried to not be with it. Is that right? <laughs> to avoid it, to deny it, to fight it, to kill it. Um, so what we have here is we actually have two very, very powerful weapons. And weapons is actually not a right word. Um, because it's really about stopping the war, stopping the fight. So we have tools. We have tools. We have attitudes. We have a worldview that might be different from the way we grew up. So mindfulness and kindness and compassion. So they help. They really do help. And many of you are in this room and you know this. And this is why you keep coming back. And for those of you who don't know that yet in your own experience, you have heard about this. And you have some preliminary faith and you give it a shot and you show up here and do this work even though it's hard. You haven't left yet. So... It's often hard to be kind to ourselves. Have you noticed that? Yeah, especially when it feels like the body has failed us or betrayed us, right? Yeah. So we have to use them carefully so they don't become a servant to our aversion to the pain. That's really important, right? Because the pain can be so bad and we want to get rid of it so badly, which is totally understandable. But then we can use these skills as a weapon, a weapon of aversion. And so there are other ways to be with that. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So... Um, very briefly, this is like we could easily have a talk or a whole class series on each of these four factors, but we have these four mind states, which we call the Brahma-viharas or the heavenly abodes, which is uh, the foundation is metta or loving kindness. And by now you have actually walked up the houses of uh, <laughs> metta karuna mudita upeka many, many times during the last few days. So those are the four Brahma-viharas, or the four heavenly abodes, right? And this is what we practice. And what's important to know is, so um, metta is the foundation. So we practice loving-kindness. We practice loving-kindness when nothing particular is going on. And then because this practice that we're practicing here, the mindfulness practice and the compassion is always situational. It's always situational. So when this matter, the loving kindness, the benevolence, encounters suffering, it turns into compassion. When it encounters joy, it turns into being happy for or being happy with. And then... The fourth one is equanimity. And there was a question this morning in the Q&A. So what actually is equanimity? And equanimity is, as Mary Grace was saying this morning, is the balancing factor. Because as we're practicing these, what we notice is there is so much suffering in this world. So much suffering. And through this practice, often really through this practice, we're also opening the door again to realize there's also so much joy in this world. 
<coughs> so much beauty, right? Which we can often overlook if we're just focusing on the pain. But here, the practice of just going deeper, slowing down, just taking one moment at a time, what we start to see is like, oh, that moment of pain is over, right? And here's something really beautiful, right? And it changes. It changes all the time. And we become more open to also receive all the beauty, which really makes a huge difference in our experience and how we experience the world. Right? So we're opening both doors, basically, of the heart. Very beautiful. And they're all positive mind states. So the compassion, uh, the, sorry, the equanimity, uh, let me find that. So the equanimity is, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, there in the middleness. <laughs> so being in the middle. And so... We talked also, Mary Grace talked about these four feeling tones. So pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor pleasant, which is actually more accurate than neutral, because we often have a weird idea about neutral. Neutral is not a positive term in our experience, right? It's like, blah, who cares, right? <laughs> so, but it's actually, it's neither pleasant nor pleasant, and it can be very interesting to explore this quality of neutral more. What is that? What is neutral? Is there actually something as a neutral experience? Because sometimes what we notice as we pay attention, then we notice, oh, this is actually pleasant. I thought it was neutral, but now that I pay attention, it's not. Right? Which is actually true for a lot of the pleasant events, right? Because when we're not paying attention, they will just pass by. We don't notice them. So we actually have to be present to be aware of them, right? So to see how the sunlight filters through the leaves and how beautiful that is, that is happening. But if we're not paying attention, it will not register as something pleasant. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the um, there in the middleness, the equanimity is the balancing power. And very important, it is not indifference, but it's actually, it's called a beautiful factor of the mind, right? And for those of you who have been practicing longer and working with equanimity, you know that it's actually a very positive feeling, very positive. So it's, it's interesting, and you can be very, really curious to say, well, what is equanimity? What is that? But it really helps us to hold it all, to balance it, and it actually, um, when you want to experience that, the concentration that you have been doing over the last few days actually is one of the factors that leads to equanimity, right? So maybe you've had moments during the day, or you have already noticed that you're a lot more equanimous, that the mind is a lot calmer, more stable, more balanced. And then actually, when it's strong, it has the power to keep the mind secluded from the hindrances. So, very interesting um, factor to explore more. So the Dhammapada says, as a solid mass of rock, it is not moved by the wind. So a sage is not moved by praise or blame, loss and gain, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And what's really interesting is um, if we're able to be unmoved, right, not 
being drawn in the face of those who praise and those who blame, right? Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, we can actually work on a whole different level for the welfare of both, of all. Because we're not so pulled into the stories, right? And we're not coming so much from a place of reaction, like pushing that away or version, pulling that close and wanting to hold on to it. Um, Just looking at time. So let's move to pain. So how are we using working with pain? Pain and compassion. So what's really important here is that for whatever reason, I'm not really sure why, I mean, we can speculate, but we have this weird idea that um, my pain is not worthy of compassion while your pain is, okay? So let's, we'll do a little experiment. I have my team prepped here, so... They are all holding pain. So, right? So they have their cushions on their lap. So Bob, Marcy, and Kim all hold pain, right? So that means <laughs> you want to push it away. So Bob thinks his pain is not worthy of compassion. Okay? So, but over here, Marcy and Kim, they actually feel Bob's pain is totally worthy of compassion. Is that true? (laughs) Okay. So, and then if Mary Grace was here, you can imagine all doing that. So Mary Grace was here, and she would think, like, Bob's pain is totally worthy of compassion. But Bob thinks what he has here is not worthy of compassion. So I think he's outnumbered. (laughs) So we can do the same thing. So Marcy, now, of course, thinks what she has on her lap is not worthy of compassion, right? But actually, Kim and Bob and Mary Grace and all of you think what she has on her lap is worthy of compassion. Do you think that? Yes. (laughs) Okay. You're outnumbered. (laughs) And Marcy. Marcy also thinks, right, that, of course, what Kim has on her lap and Bob has on his lap is totally worthy of compassion, but what she has is not. Okay? So while Bob and Kim... And Mary Grace and all of you think whatever Marcy has on her lap is totally worthy of compassion. Who do you think is right? The masses. They're outnumbered. So why I want to... Thank you for (laughs) being my props here. Um, Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird? Because if we're thinking about it, right? So we've talked about that this, what we actually have here, is not personal. It comes with a personal story, and we have a history, and we're very attached to it. But this is actually not who we are. You're not your pain. This is just part of your experience in this moment. And pain deserves compassion, period. It doesn't matter whether it's my pain or your pain, right? Because we could just see that whatever we have here is totally worthy of compassion. Totally. Because everybody else thinks it's totally worthy of compassion. So we just have this weird thing in our mind, and I really want to encourage you to get over it. (laughs) Just see pain as pain and practice compassion for that. It doesn't matter whether that's your pain or not. Does Does that make sense? 
And it's hard to put into practice because we are so conditioned that what we have here, when I look at it, something different, so it's not worthy of compassion, right? Well, you would never, right? If your friend had the same pain, you would never say, like, that's not worthy of compassion, right? Go find, do something else, get over it, right? No, you would never do that. And yet we do that to ourselves. So what we do here is... um, we add insult to injury, right? And this is another, it's a classical teaching of the Buddha. It's called the teachings of the two arrows. And the way that I also want to give you another visual is like the teaching of the many cushions, which (laughs) Marcy and Kim will demonstrate now. So Marcy is again holding her pain, right? So that's her pain. That's the pain. It's just pain. Right? So we're not trying to discuss it away. This is just her pain. So now the mind starts to add on to that pain. So how would, like, what would the mind say to add on another layer of pain? It shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So is she gonna go away? When will it go, will it go away? <laughs> yes. It's your own fault, yes. Uh huh. We need more cushions. Um, we have two more over here. Yeah. <laughs> How about get over it? Yeah? Or you're not worth, or you've already spent so much time on this. Like, just let go of it, right? <laughs> Do you have some more? Something's wrong with me. Yes, so something's wrong with me. Thank you. There was. Oh, what does this mean for my future? Oh, yes, the whole future. Yes, thank you, thank you. We probably need a whole stack for the future on top of that. Okay, what else do we got? Why me? Why me? Yes, thank you. <laughs> you have some more? Will I ever learn? Will I ever learn? Yes. Oh, you brought this on yourself. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think you get the idea. Yes? Can you relate? Yeah, we're doing that. Yeah. So I can barely see Marcy behind her stack of cushions now. Is that how are you doing behind her? There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of suffering. <laughs> yeah, she says she has a lot of suffering. Yes, she does, right? So, and what do we do? <laughs> yeah, so what do we do? Compassion, yeah. Let go. <laughs> yeah, how about we start with letting go? Therapy. Therapy, yes. <laughs> letting go of some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and often they pile just as fast back on as you've let go of them. Yeah. So what we do is... <laughs> Didn't let go enough. Or she has some other that she can pile on now, right? Yeah. But I think you get the point. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. <laughs> So, what we do is we notice, so we use our mindfulness skills, right, to say, oh, look at this, this is what the mind is doing. And then you can, for a moment, let it go. This, what she has on her lap, the original pain is still there, right? And this can be physical pain, but it can also be emotional pain. It's just, or a challenging emotion, right? And so why don't we just try to just stay with that? 
So, right, because you can see this compared to the whole stack might actually be manageable, right? And so how do we stop piling this on? And one thing is to work with thoughts, right? Because a lot of like what you were just um, shouting out and what we were piling on are thoughts, right? And we know or we learn in this practice how to work with thoughts. We can say, thank you, not now. And we can allow thoughts to pass through. We don't have to get rid of them, right? We just allow them to go into the background, right? We don't have to be aggressive. We just say, thank you, not now. And then we can attend to the pain. And what is really important is that kindness overrules everything. And you know how to be with your pain. You have some strategies. And we know research shows that distracting actually helps short-term, right? And so depending on how you're feeling or how resourced you are in any given moment, right, you can say, like, today I actually need to distract myself. This is not a good time to go into the pain because I, I'm not resourced enough, right? I, I might be... I might have not slept well the last few days, right? And I might have had a fight with my partner, right? Or there's just like some work stress that's really hard on me, right? And in these moments, use your distractions. Use your distractions. And in my experience, if we give ourselves permission and we say like, oh no, we always have to be mindful and be with it, that also can create some tension in the body. Because when we not use it skillfully, we can use mindfulness actually in quite a cold and harsh way. Like we can jerk the attention here. And it's not kind, right? So to be aware also of the quality of attention. And then when we do this, then actually our entire system is more willing at other times when we feel more resource to say, okay, honey, Let's go into this. Let's have a look at this. Let's be with this. And then what's really important is to um, use mindfulness and compassion given, again, the situation and see what is skillful, right? So we often use this um, saying from the Abhidharma that says, like, wisdom and compassion are like the two wings of a bird. We need both to fly. We need both to fly. And the wisdom is more the mindfulness, so seeing things as they are. But since this is all on a spectrum or on a continuum, we can get out of balance, right? And so the seeing things as they are can actually become cold, detached, and maybe cruel or even indifferent, right? So it can really get out of balance way over here. So what we do then, and mindfulness actually has a more cooling quality, right? It's not cold, but cool. And cool is sometimes really something that we need. Like when something's really crazy and out of control or just feels hot, right? Then the cooling quality, calming quality of mindfulness is really important. And then on the other hand, we have compassion. Compassion is warm, has a warm quality, not hot, warm. But it can get out of balance over here. It can move into overwhelm. 
and shut down, and it can also move into pity or self-pity, right? So this is really an art form that we're learning. We're learning how to, in a given situation, to see so the right mix of mindfulness and compassion. And what is really important is also to notice that we can intentionally be mindful. We cannot be intentionally compassionate, right? Because that is a heart quality, and the heart qualities don't work that way. I can't make myself feel compassionate. I can't make myself feel gratitude. I can't make (coughs) myself feel joy. What I do is I can open the doors to these mind states and then set the intention to invite them in. And I can promise you when you do this over and over again, you will experience this more. And it's also something as we're going deeper into concentration, out of that will also arise a natural, like a proximate cause of there will be moments of peacefulness and happiness and joy that arise completely independent of what is going on. And I know that people here in here have experienced that already on this retreat or on previous retreats, right? Then you just sit here, nothing has changed, and you're suddenly happy as can be. And it's amazing. Nothing has changed. All the stuff is still the same, and here you are, really, really happy. So, and then the last thing, looking at time, um, is, of course, there can, can be lots and lots to be said more to this, but I think this is a good start, so you have an idea. And the last thing is um, to also really use what we've talked about on the first day when we talked, when Bob led us through the finding refuge, right? So g- going into this retreat, we went for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, or the ideal of freedom, the path, how to get there, or the map, which is what you're practicing here, and then the community. And right now, this is definitely the community of all of us in here and all of the people who are um, practicing this. And this going back all the way to the Buddha. This is quite a lot, like quite a impressive track record, I would say, right? 2,500 years. (laughs) So to find refuge, to find refuge in the three jewels or anything else here. So for many people, this, the refuge shows up, the map shows up, the path shows up in the form of nature, right? And we're out here in beautiful nature. So to use that, use that. And especially if you feel overwhelmed, if you have strong emotions, then you need a little bit of help. Nature can be huge help here. You can go lie on the ground or you can let, and let yourself be held by the earth. It can be a really, really sweet practice. You can go and hug a tree. Um, I know I don't have to tell anybody at home <laughs> that we're hugging trees on a retreat. <laughs> I, I had a um, just a quick story just on a, just um, last month when I was teaching a retreat and I had um, a young man in there who was just um, 
having a total self-hatred attack, like really, really bad self-hatred attack. And he just couldn't get out of it. And I told him to go lie on the ground and then hug a tree. And he and I made it very funny so he could actually accept that and try it out instead of just thinking he's just stupid and he got into a cult and I'm, I don't know, like some hippy-dippy Californian girl who just happens to speak German. Um, and, and he did it. And he came back and had this huge smile on his face and said, I think I like that, but please don't tell anybody. <laughs> so, um, summary. So basically what we got, went over is, so being with the body, this body, from the inside, and also being perceived from the outside as a body, not as an individual, just a body, a black body, a white body, a brown body, yellow body, body, female, male, whatever. Then pain is worthy of compassion regardless of whose pain it is, my pain, your pain, just pain. And using the skills of wisely using mindfulness, more cool, and compassion, more warm, as needed in any given moment. And then really giving yourself the freedom to find refuge, to find refuge. And um, also just, just thinking like, I don't know, I hope the talk wasn't like too depressing and so focusing too much on the negative and on the pain. I was thinking about that, and I know many of you have very happy, light, peaceful moments here, but usually that is not why you come to us and say, like, help, help. Usually you're doing just fine with the happy and pleasant moments. So it feels a little bit more that we have to focus on that more, on how to work with that. So I want to end with a poem. Um, which goes back to the nature. And this is a poem that has many poems that I use a lot that um, Bob introduced to me many years ago. And it's called The Peace of Wild Things. And it's from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's life may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and a great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.